Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 1, Episode 2, the first part on the history of the King James Version of the Bible. Before we start in the beginning, it's important to understand how the versions of the Bible I will be utilizing were constructed. As I stated in the last episode, the introduction, I will be using the Christian Bible not only as the starting point for this journey, but I will also be referring to it from the beginning to the Revelation. Additionally, I will use its structure to order the podcast. The first version I will use, at least in terms of the date when it was first published, is the King James Version, or as it's known in Great Britain, the Authorized Version. This version is widely regarded as the most printed book in the history of mankind, and of course, it doesn't hurt that it's been in existence for over 400 years. Not to forget that its introduction coincided with an explosion in the number of printing presses in Europe. But, as we will learn later, there isn't just one King James Version. The King James uses a word-for-word translation of the Old Testament. It was translated from the Masoretic Hebrew text, while the Apocrypha was translated also word-for-word from the Greek Septuagint. Now some of you, especially those of a Protestant orientation, may be wondering what the weird word is I just used. The Apocrypha are the books, are parts of books, that are not included in the traditional Protestant Bible, but are included in other, more traditional translations. I'm sure some of you know which books I'm referring to, but many more will have to wait. We'll get to those books in the future. The New Testament was translated, also word for word, from the Textus Receptus, also known as the Received Text edition of the Greek text, so-called because the most existing texts of the time of the King James were in agreement with it. The translation was authorized, or better stated, ordered by King James I in England. So who was this King James? With the death of Queen Elizabeth I in 1603, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. And remember that in that moment in time, The King of England was also the head of the Church of England. When he took the throne, the number of English translations of the Bible caused disunity in the kingdom. As such, the Church of England was in a divided state. Specifically, there were the conformists, who did not desire for the Church to change. On the other side were the Puritans, who sought to reform the Church. Sound familiar? In October 1603, King James called a conference of theologians, lawyers, and laymen to address the issue. Wait, lawyers? Remember, at that time, there was no separation of church and state. So yes, lawyers were called in to discuss the disunity within the church. They met in Hampton Court Palace, located in the present-day London borough of Richmond-upon-Thames. You have to give it to the Brits. Even their town names seem very dignified. He ordered that in January 1604 there would be a conference, and I'm quoting here, for the hearing and determining of things pretended to be amiss in the church. I think the word pretended may have made a few of the reformers a little angry. On the second day of the conference, the clergy approached the king and stated their desire for a new translation to replace the Bishop's Bible, first printed in 1568, and the Geneva Bible, printed in its complete form in 1560. They also wanted to thwart the Catholic challenge symbolized by the Doemi Reims Bible. The actual proposal for a new translation came from a Puritan, Dr. John Reynolds, president of Corpus Christi College, and no, not in Texas. 
The clergy knew that the Geneva Version had won the support of the people because of its excellent scholarship, accuracy, and exhaustive commentary. However, they did not want to keep the controversial margin notes, such as proclaiming the Pope an Antichrist. I'm thinking the word disunity may be a little too weak to describe the state of the church at the time. Essentially, the leaders of the church desired a Bible for the people, with scriptural references only for word clarification or cross-references. While King James was attempting to bring unity to the Church of England by producing a unified and new translation of the Bible, free of Calvinist and Popish influence, so the king agreed with the proposal. The conformists had resisted the movement towards a new translation for a time, suspecting the Puritans of ulterior motives. At the same time, the Puritan party pressed for immediate action, and the king did his best to appease both and worked to secure bilateral support. In reality, he favored the proposal of the Puritans, but at the same time, he pronounced their Genevan version to be the worst of all in the English language, and therefore pleased the conformist party. Even though he was the king, James also knew how to be a politician, and so early in his reign. The overall goal was to produce a better translation than any other in existence, a translation that could be understood by common people. So, what was the translation process they used for such a task? As mentioned in the introduction, the King James Version is a word-for-word translation of older text. In producing this translation, there were six panels of translators, all appointed by King James. Each panel had approximately eight translators, two panels meeting at the University of Oxford, two at the University of Cambridge, and two at Westminster. The number of translators varies, primarily because while working, some died or resigned and had to be replaced. They were presided over by the Dean of Westminster and by two Hebrew professors from Oxford and Cambridge Universities. They all began their work in 1604. Of these six panels, two oversaw the translation of the New Testament, three the translation of the Old Testament, and one the translation of the Apocrypha. In case you want the real specifics, the first panel at Westminster, which had ten translators, were assigned the Old Testament from Genesis to 2 Kings. The second Westminster panel, numbering seven translators, had the letters of the New Testament. The first panel at Cambridge, with eight translators, had First Chronicles, or as some would call it, One Chronicles, to Song of Solomon. The second panel at Cambridge, with seven translators, had the apocryphal books. To the first Oxford panel, numbering seven, were assigned the books of the prophets of the Old Testament, from Isaiah to Malachi. The second Oxford panel, with eight translators, were given the four Gospels, Acts, and the Revelation. To add a little more color to the story, I'll provide some background information for a few of the translators, and this isn't for any purpose other than to humanize these men, and in doing so, I hope you can begin to understand the sacrifices they made, and it may also lend some credibility to the translation. Not that it needs any. First, there was Dr. Lancelot Andrews, who was the Dean of Westminster and presided over the Westminster panel. It has been stated that he was so skilled in all, especially Oriental languages, that some conceive he might, if then living, almost have served as interpreter general at the confusion of tongues. In other words, he knew many languages and was seen as one of the best translators of his era, to the point that he could have straightened things out at Babel, and that story will be covered in a few months. Also, keep in mind that At that time, the word Oriental did not define as being from Eastern Asia, such as China or Japan. 
but instead meant only those lands east of Europe. Going back to the word's origin, if you wanted to orient yourself and therefore want to know which direction is east, merely look to where the sun rises. Dr. Andrews successively became the Bishop of Chinchester, Eli, and Winchester. He was born in 1555 and died in 1626. Dr. Edward Lively was a professor of Hebrew at Cambridge and therefore the head of the Cambridge panel. He was also known for his knowledge of Eastern languages, especially Hebrew. He died in 1605, having been a professor of Hebrew for 25 years and before the translation task was complete. When he died, he left his widow 11 children to care for. Dr. John Overall was installed as a professor of divinity at Cambridge in 1596 and in 1604 was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. He was considered by some to be the most learned in divinity in England. He served in the first Westminster panel of translators. In 1614, he was made the Bishop of Lichfield in Coventry. He was transferred to the See of Norwich, See is spelled S-E-E, and is essentially a bishop. Dr. Overall was born in 1559 and died in 1619. Dr. Adrian de Saravia is thought to have been the only non-Briton employed on the work. He was born in Artois, France in 1531 with his father a Spaniard and his mother a Belgian. In 1582, he was a professor of divinity at Leiden University in the present-day Netherlands. In 1587, he went to England. He became prebend, which is a senior member of the clergy of Canterbury and afterwards the Canon of Westminster which also sounds like it could have been a piece of artillery, but in reality, it was an ordained priest at that cathedral. He was part of the first Westminster panel and was noted for his knowledge of Hebrew. The doctor died in 1612, just as the translation was being published. William Bedwell, or according to some sources, Bedwell, was considered one of the greatest Arabic scholars of his day. He was also fluent in other Eastern languages and was a member of the first panel at Westminster. Being a Renaissance man, or more modernly referred to as a polymath, he also invented a geometric ruler, considered to be one of the precursors of the slide rule. At his death, he left an unfinished manuscript of Arabic lexicon, but he did complete a Persian dictionary. Dr. Lawrence Chatterton served for 38 years as the first master, basically the head, of Emmanuel College, now a part of the University of Cambridge, and he was also well-versed in rabbinical learning. He was one of the few Puritans among the translators. He was born in either 1536 or 1537 as a Catholic, and when he converted to Anglicanism, he was disinherited by his father. He died in 1640 at the age of 103 or 4, which is an amazing age for our time, but for then it was unbelievable. As an aside, soon after he left Emmanuel College, John Harvard was admitted. This is the same John Harvard for whom Harvard University is named a weave in the fabric of history. Dr. John Reynolds, remember, he was the man who first suggested a new translation, was well-versed in both Hebrew and Greek, and was also a Puritan. At the time, he was serving as president of Corpus Christi College. He was born in 1549 and died of consumption, modernly referred to as tuberculosis, in 1607, before the translation was complete. I'll post his portrait on the podcast Facebook page for reference. Dr. Miles Smith was a student of classic authors from his youth, was well acquainted with the rabbinical learning, and was also well versed in Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, and Arabic. Dr. Smith served in the first Oxford panel, as well as the editing committee. 
He, along with Thomas Bilson, performed the final examination of the text before sending it to the printers. It is unclear when he was born, but most sources cite 1554. He died in 1624. Thomas Bilson was educated at Winchester College and New College, Oxford. He began to distinguish himself as a poet until, on receiving ordination, he gave himself wholly to theological studies. He became the Bishop of Worcester in 1596, then the Bishop of Winchester in 1597. He was so highly regarded by the king that he gave King James's coronation sermon. He advised the king not to hold the Hampton Court Conference, instead leave religious matters to professionals. My interpretation of this was that it was not meant to insult the king, but was instead to keep less learned religious men out, maybe the lawyers. That would certainly make sense to me. He was no stranger to controversy, having been caught up in the debate over the harrowing of hell. Yes, the harrowing of hell. That seems a bit redundant to me, too. Bilson's literal views on the descent of Christ into hell were too orthodox for conformist Anglicans, while the Puritan wing of the church preferred a metaphorical or spiritual reading, Bilson steadfastly maintained that Christ went to hell, not to suffer, but to wrest the keys of hell out of the devil's hands. That certainly does make for some imagery, at least in my mind's eye. He died in 1616 and is buried in Westminster Abbey, between Richard II and Edward III. John Boys is reported to have had the ability to read the Hebrew Bible at age five. At six years of age, it is said he could write Hebrew elegantly. He attended St. John's College at Cambridge, initially intending to study medicine, but found that its study brought on hypochondria. So, quite naturally, he switched to Greek, and then spent ten years as the chief lecturer in Greek at the same school. Coincidentally, his mentor and Greek teacher at St. John's was Andrew Downs, in 1596, he married the daughter of Francis Holt, rector at Boxworth, and after the death of Holt, took over that post. Many church posts at that time were kept within families. He served in the second Cambridge panel and also on the editing committee. While translating, he kept the notes he made on the Latin Vulgate, which were later printed. He was born in 1560 and died in 1643, predeceased by his wife and all seven of his children. That had to be tough. Andrew Downs was educated at St. John's College, Cambridge. In 1571, he was elected fellow of the same school, and in 1585, he was appointed as a professor of Greek, a position which he held for nearly 40 years. Similar to Boys, he also served in the second Cambridge panel and on the editing committee. He was born in 1549 and died in either 1627 or 1628. Sir Henry Seville was educated at Brasenose College, Oxford, and became a fellow of Merton College, now a part of Oxford University. He was known as both a Greek scholar and mathematician. He was also King James's predecessor, Queen Elizabeth I's Greek tutor. In 1601, he was arrested on suspicion of having been involved in the rebellion of the Earl of Essex, but he was quickly released and his friendship with the faction of Essex aided him in gaining the favor of King James so much favor that the king knighted him in 1604. He served on the second Oxford panel. He was born in 1549 and died in 1622. As an aside, his grandson, Sir Charles Sedley, went on to become the Speaker of the British House of Commons. Dr. Thomas Holland graduated from Exeter College, Oxford in 1570. After some time on the continent, and at this time, if you were English, this meant Europe, 
he returned to Exeter to serve as rector, and then later as a professor of divinity. As a member of the university committee, he distinguished himself as a skilled disputant, what we now call a debater. At that time, theological disputations were held as an important part of the university experience. It was also valued as an essential tool in determining truth. That's right, they would argue with each other to determine what was the truth. Could you imagine if we held presidential candidate debates to determine what was the truth? Such disputations were also viewed as entertainment and were presented at universities to mark the visit of a monarch. While in academia, Holland participated in two significant disputations, one marking the visit to Oxford by Queen Elizabeth and the other a visit of King James. For the translation, he was a member of the first Oxford panel. He was born in 1539 and died in 1612. I wish I could say this was the first time I had heard the word disputation. But sadly, the first time was when Anne Rice used its derivative. And, after reading about these men, I'm beginning to feel a bit like an underachiever. During the translation process, in order to keep the entire work consistent, a procedure based upon 14 rules was established. And while I will not normally read a list such as this verbatim, this one is short enough and also helps to provide insight into the thinking at the time. Specifically, and in the language of the time, First, the ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly referred to as the Bishop's Bible, to be followed, and as little altered as the original will permit. Number two, the names of the prophets and the holy writers, with the other names in the text to be retained as near as may be, accordingly as they are vulgarly used. Number three, the old ecclesiastical works to be kept, as the word church, not to be translated congregation. Number four. When any word hath diverse significations, that to be kept which hath been most commonly used by the most eminent fathers, being agreeable to the propriety of the place in the analogies of faith. Now the old English in this one is a bit confusing. So in our modern language, it simply means that if a word in the original text has multiple meanings, The meaning to be used is that which has been used most often by prior translators. Number five, the division of chapters to be altered either not at all or as little as may be if necessity so require. Number six, no marginal notes at all to be affixed, but only for the explanation of the Hebrew or Greek words which cannot, without some circumlocution, so briefly and fitly be expressed in the text. Number seven, Such quotations of places to be marginally set down as shall serve for the fit reference of one scripture to another. Number eight, each particular man of each company to take the same chapter or chapters, and having translated or amended them severally by himself where he thinks good, all to meet together to confirm what they have done, and agree for their part what shall stand. Number nine, as any one company hath dispatched any one book in this manner, they shall send it to the rest, to be considered of seriously and judiciously, for his majesty is very careful on this point. Number 10. If any company, upon the review of the book so sent, shall doubt or differ upon any places, to send them word thereof, to note the places, and to therewithal to send their reasons, to which, if they consent not, the difference to be compounded at the general meeting 
which is to be of the chief persons of each company at the end of the work. Number 11. When any place of special obscurity is doubted of, letters to be directed by authority to send to any learned man in the land for his judgment of such a place. Number 12. Letters to be sent from every bishop to the rest of his clergy, admonishing them of this translation in hand, and to move and charge as many as, being skillful in the tongues, have taken pains in that kind, to send their particular observations to the company, either at Westminster, Cambridge, or Oxford, according as it was directed before in the king's letter to the archbishop. Number 13. The directors in each company to be the deans of Westminster and Chester for Westminster, and the king's professors in Hebrew and Greek in the two universities. Number 14. These translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the bishop's Bible. Tyndall's, Coverdell's, Matthew's, Whitchurch's, and Geneva. A fifteenth rule was added after the initial set of instructions. Three or four of the most ancient engraved divines in either of the universities not employed in translating to be assigned to be overseers of the translation for the better observation of the fourth rule. Of course, you may possibly note that rule number three superficially seems different from my definition of the word church, as I laid out in the first episode. But my interpretation is that they actually define the same, and there is little doubt that the usage of some words has changed over the past 400 years. Why else would you call the prophets and the holy writers' names vulgar? Of course, then the word vulgar meant common. And with that, I'll end this episode. I'll pick up next week with the actual translation process. You don't want to miss it, and I'm sure you'll walk away knowing more than you know today. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.